Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Joseph A. Carcillo, MD, about the American College of Critical Care Medicine clinical practice parameters for hemodynamic support of pediatric and neonatal septic shock, published in Critical Care Medicine in June 2017. Dr. Carcillo is a professor of anesthesia, critical care medicine, and pediatrics at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine in Pittsburgh. Pennsylvania. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, Dr. Parker. Before we begin, do you have any disclosures to share? I have no disclosures to share. Thank you. Joe, can you start out with talking about the previous guidelines? This was a revision. And so when when were the previous guidelines done? How often did they get revised and so forth? Yes, in 1998, um, I was asked by Dr. Alan Fields, who was on the Regents of the American College of Critical Care Medicine, to head up a task force for the set, first set of hemodynamic guidelines for management of septic shock in newborns and children. At that time, the Institute of Medicine had put out a call to provide best practice guidelines, not not evidence-based medicine, but rather best practice guidelines. And the first set of guidelines were put together in 1998 and published in 2002. The plan was to have them revisited every five years, but because there's a bit of a gap between when they are revisited and then they have to go through uh, various levels of peer review, they generally are published two years later than their target. So we published the 2002 guidelines, and then the 2007 update was actually published in 2009, and then the 2012 guidelines in 2014, and now the 2015 guidelines are published in 2017. So what was the process that you used to update the guidelines this time? Was it different from when you did the previous guidelines? Uh, Yes. In the last two sets of the guidelines, the American College of Critical Care Medicine asked us to use new grade methodology. And particularly this time, we used a American College of Critical Care Medicine librarian to attain all the references. The investigators and collaborators in the task force did the grading, not the librarian from ACCM. And the previous guidelines were done? Well, the first two guidelines, um, not this third one, were not used using grade methodology. They were using different methodologies, which the American College of Critical Care Medicine had recommended at that time. So now you're using the grade methodology, which is kind of be- now become... Now grade methodology. One of the problems with grade methodology, which we did not address in this set, was uh, the PICO question. We were unable to come up with a PICO question. So we used the grade methodology for grading the literature, but did not ask any answer any PICO PICO questions other than, had the guidelines been disseminated? And two, were there any recommendations that needed to be changed from the last set of guidelines? And the PICO is the population, the intervention, the comparators, and the outcomes, right? Exactly. So can you review for us what the major differences are in these newest guidelines compared to previous uh, guidelines? Yes. It's my pleasure. From the standpoint of the practitioner um, practicing medicine, the major modification in this new set of guidelines is that when a practitioner sees a child with septic shock and initially uh, determines that they are either fluid unresponsive or that they shouldn't be given fluids, and we don't give fluids to patients who have hepatomegaly or crackles, the prior guidelines had said to start a peripheral inotrope. Investigators in Brazil, led by Dr. Ventura, have completed a randomized trial showing that peripheral adrenaline reduced mortality compared to peripheral dopamine from 20% to 7%, not only by attaining higher blood pressure and reversal of shock rates initially, but also with a marked reduction in nosocomial infections. 
probably related to the fact that dopamine is a, a dopamine A2 agonist and that that turns off the production of prolactin. And when you don't make prolactin, then you don't have the counter-regulatory stress hormone to steroids and you're at higher risk of nosocomial infection. So the new guidelines from the practitioner level now state uh, that there is a preferred peripheral inotrope, which is peripheral adrenaline. When you make it up, you have to make it up at one-third the central dose and run it three times as fast, although it's the same concentration. That's because we don't want to have any peripheral complications. Epinephrine is uh, recommended by uh, PALS for cardiac arrest uh, being given through a peripheral IV, so it's quite acceptable. The reason epinephrine is acceptable rather than, say, norepinephrine is epinephrine Epinephrine has a beta-2 receptor, so it offsets the alpha effect, whereas norepinephrine does not have that beta-2 receptor. The major change in the guidelines, however, are actually from an institutional basis. We're now calling for checklists to be developed on an institution context-specific manner. Those um, checklists and bundles include, one, early recognition with a trigger tool, two, an early resuscitation bundle, three, a stabilization bundle, and then after that, a performance bundle where the group of sepsis experts at the hospital review what the barriers were to attaining uh, the prior three checklist bundles and then uh, come up with action plans to ameliorate that in in the future. So aiming for a continuous quality improvement. Exactly. Saying that... um, the responsibility for sepsis is no longer practitioner-based alone, but also institutionally-based as well. What were some of the controversial topics in uh, this revision of the guidelines? I think the most controversial topic is whether or not to use fluids. So the guidelines from the beginning have talked about using fluids in a precision medicine individual uh, individually-based manner. There was a randomized trial in Africa where patients were given uh, 60 mLs per kilo of fluid versus uh, IV maintenance fluids, um, and there was an increase in mortality in the children who received the 60 mLs per kilo. As we look at this as an expert committee, our guidelines do not say to give 60 mLs per kilo of fluid to patients. Instead, it says to assess the patient, and then if the patient does not have hepatomegaly or crackles or rolls, to give 20 mLs per kilo and then to reassess as needed. In addition, our guidelines say to give blood if you're anemic. Neither of these factors were in the fluid arm in the FEAST trial. The FEAST trial gave fluids to everybody regardless of hepatomegaly or crackles and gave blood but only after giving fluid in patients who had a hemoglobin uh, less than 5. The next controversy was there were three adult studies that showed that early therapy for septic shock in the emergency department, that you had better outcomes than ever before, but showing no benefit from any of the three. The three arms used either clinical targets, such as blood pressure and capillary refill, or they used uh, lactate clearance, or they used systemic central venous oxygen saturations. Our guidelines actually recommend using the most conservative of that, mainly pulses, Uh, blood pressure, and capillary refill in the emergency department. So we felt after reading those three studies that our guidelines still remain consistent. The other controversy, though, for people is that we do uh, recommend following SCVO2 SATs in the PICU. Um, There are two studies that have been done in the pediatric ICUs, one in Brazil and one in India, both showing a, a number needed to treat of three patients with an SCVO2 SAT less than 70% to save one. So we continue to maintain our guidelines, which in the emergency department are targeting capillary refill, 
pulses and blood pressure, but in the PICU, we target uh, perfusion pressure, which is mean arterial pressure minus central venous pressure, and an SCVO2 over 70%. In addition, another randomized trial, which showed an improvement in survival, showed that when you have meningitis with sepsis, the targeting perfusion pressure using norepinephrine to increase your mean arterial pressure, again, the number needed to treat was three to save one compared to ICP monitoring. Uh, what about steroids? Uh, steroids, we have continued to recommend hydrocortisone if you suspect adrenal insufficiency. If you look at the adult data, what they really show is that if you don't have adrenal insufficiency and you give steroids, you have harm. If you do have adrenal insufficiency and give steroids, they're of benefit. Uh, the real conundrum for the pediatric practitioner is, what if I can't tell if they have adrenal insufficiency? Some centers can send off cortisol levels and do ACTH stem testing. Others can't. So we still leave that up to the clinical judgment of the practitioner. But clearly, if you suspect adrenal insufficiency, the therapy is hydrocortisone. I think nobody would argue about that, but it, it does, uh, when you're faced with a child who has refractory shock and you have very little else to offer, a lot of people just throw in the steroids, because what if they're adrenaline? Yeah, well, we, we published a paper actually from Brazil where we looked at this question, and in fact, those patients uh, predominantly do have uh, adrenal insufficiency. So, you know, uh, you have to suspect that some of the things that help you to suspect it would be if they've been on steroids in the past, if they have Waterhouse Friedrichsen, which is the or perfulminans, if they have any kind of uh, central nervous system lesion, pretty much people do give hydrocortisone if they're in a refractory condition. Are there other areas of controversy, or those are those are the big ones, I guess? Um, I think uh, the there are there are areas of controversy in the infectious disease world. They're very concerned about antibiotic stewardship. Uh, we take the tack that you have to treat within the first hour. And recently, the Center for Disease Control has called sepsis an emergency and is actually backing our conclusion, which is in the in the setting of septic shock, uh, antibiotics must be given in the first hour. I think there's very little argument about that, even with the <laughs> infectious disease people. But down the road, the reassessment and scaling back, if uh, possible, is that's probably the part that we have the most work to do. Yeah, I think in, in pediatrics, the major issue is there were two articles that were done uh, saying in previ previously healthy children that they rarely saw staph pneumonia for community-acquired pneumonia. So they recommend treating with either ampicillin or cephalosporin. When you read the fine print of the articles, it says if the patient is worsening, then cover for staphylococcus. But the practice has been to perhaps not go to staphylococcal coverage very early. When we look at the epidemiologic studies, previously healthy children, it is staph aureus, which is the leading cause of death. So we're more aggressive in recommending staph coverage up front for septic shock. Well, I think if you have septic shock, that's a different population than if you have a community-acquired pneumonia but are hemodynamically stable. I agree. And I, I don't think you'd get a lot of pushback from uh, intensivists, at least, about covering for staff. Right. Um, you alluded to the length of time from actually developing the guidelines until they get published. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, uh, you have several layers. So, uh, you set up the guidelines and you have your internal review. It's then reviewed by outside reviewers who then uh, bring them back to you and you have to address all the reviews and it goes out again. It then goes to the American College and the American College reviews it and sends it back again. And then finally there, it goes to the, I believe, the Board of Regents to review. So there's three levels of review that occur after the guidelines are initially submitted in their, in their 
their draft final form. And, you know, if it's six months, you know, six months between review and addressing and reformatting, that's 18 months. And then, you know, six months for publication. So that's, so it's about a two-year delay. Difficult to shorten that up any. Well, I think, I mean, I think it's okay because, I mean, you want to make sure if you have guidelines coming out from a society that, that the society agrees. I think it's right. better to be prudent than to be prompt. And I think that the final level of review goes through the SCCM Council. So, you know, as you noted, these guidelines have more levels of review than a uh, research paper, which really just goes through the journal. Absolutely. And, and, and the impact has been tremendous. There's, there's two pediatric initiatives. One is the, is the American Academy of Pediatric Children's Healthcare Association's Emergency Department Pediatric Septic Shock Initiative, which has seen a reduction in mortality from 11% to 3% implementing the ACCM guidelines. And now the follow-up is the Improving Pediatric Sepsis Outcome, which has uh, 96 hospi- children's hospitals around our country now, again, looking at implementing the guidelines. So I think, you know, with a goal of a 75% reduction, reduction in going from sepsis to shock and also a reduction in mortality, therefore, of 75%. So I, I think the, the guidelines have really saved many, many lives in the United States and abroad. I, I think you're right about that. How often do you think the guidelines should be revised? I think every five years is reasonable. The field is rapidly advancing, and especially with the multiple drug-resistant organism epidemic that's happening now, I think we need to, every five years is, is the minimum time that it should be done. I think you're right about that. You have led, I guess, all of the, all of the guidelines developments, haven't you? Uh, not well, all of the uh, hemodynamic guideline development. This is the last rendition. The society's decided now to change it to the surviving sepsis campaign, and I'm not running that at all. I believe it's uh, for for us. I believe it's Scott Weiss from our from the SCCM, and then Narajan Kasun from the from Wifpex and Jean-Paul Tissier from ESICM. So the the process will change a little bit and become part of the surviving sepsis campaign with separate pediatric guidelines going forward. Yeah, yes. And, and, and what we're talking about today is the American College of Critical Care Medicine hemodynamic support guidelines, which have been adapted and also published by the AAP and the AHA and the PALS guideline, but they're not going to be happening anymore after this rendition. It's going to now be the Pediatric Surviving Sepsis Campaign, which addresses not only the hemodynamic support, but all the other aspects of of, uh, managing septic shock. Right. You talked early on in the differences in these guidelines that now, for the, I think this is the first time that the ACCM practice parameters for hemodynamic support have had those specific checklists and included in that is early antibiotic therapy and so forth. So it's sort of morphing into a form that in a way, parallels the surviving sepsis bundles. So I think this is a good transition. Uh, Yes, right. That is correct. The checklists were first pioneered by the surviving sepsis campaign, and we are adapting them. I think that's a a good transition move as the um, pediatric surviving sepsis guidelines get developed. I agree. Do you have any other comments you'd like to make? Yeah, a few things. Um, So the, the major thing is we're not depending on the physician practitioner now to recognition to recognize or trigger identification. So uh, we're recommending that all hospitals have a trigger tool 
or protocol for how they recognize septic shock during triage and a form of monitoring it. And then at that time, that they have a protocol of how long it takes a physician to come to see that patient decide, to decide whether that is septic shock, and then at that time to enter into the treatment bundles. So it is a, a very major change in that hospital administrators, who of course are a great part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, now are taking a very active role in trying to wipe out really what is the leading cause of death in children worldwide and the United States' second leading. Great. Well, thank you very much for talking uh, with us today, Joe. Thank you, Dr. Parker. We have been talking today with Dr. Joseph Garcillo from the University of Pittsburgh about the American College of Critical Care Medicine clinical practice parameters for hemodynamic support of pediatric and neonatal septic shock published in Critical Care Medicine in June 2017. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Wear that you care. Shop SCCM's eye-catching collection of logo apparel at www.sccm.org slash apparel. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM. Dr. Margaret Parker is Professor of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.